expertise panel and interview process that we have established at Functional Pathways to really talk to industry experts on multiple different topics. Today, I am proud to introduce Kayla Collins, Clinical Associate Professor at Baylor University and OT extraordinaire, who is going to be talking today with us about sleep hygiene and some of the studies that she's been doing around sleep hygiene. So welcome, Kayla. Thank you. So what is sleep hygiene? So sleep hygiene are the things that we do to prepare ourselves for sleep and to get restful sleep. So there's a difference between we go to sleep and sometimes you might wake up still feeling like, gosh, I, did, I didn't get any sleep tonight. And that's when we're getting sleep, but it's not necessarily restful. It might be disturbed or it just doesn't feel like we're getting enough of it. And it's not good quality sleep. Uh, sleep hygiene really encompasses not just the actual aspect of falling asleep, which is a very physiological thing that we do, but all of the things we do to prepare ourselves to fall into a good sleep and to really get that restful sleep that we need to feel rejuvenated when we wake up in the morning. So I know you are recently involved in a study around sleep hygiene. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. We did a retrospective study, which is really where we look back at the data on patient outcomes in relationship to a sleep screening questionnaire that we did. So we looked at patients in both short-term and long-term rehab facilities uh, across Florida, and we asked people questions about their sleep, their self-reported sleep, on whether they were feel like they were getting enough sleep at night, whether that sleep was really of good quality. So we looked at quantity and quality, and then whether they had too much daytime sleepiness. Those were the first three questions we asked every patient that was getting occupational therapy. And if they screened, yes, meaning that they had an issue with one of those three areas, then we did the promised sleep disturbances and the promised sleep impairment scale, which is an NIH scale that looks at those two separate factors of sleep. Are you staying asleep and are you getting a good quality and a good quantity sleep? And we looked at, based on those results, if we look at their therapy outcomes, we didn't do any interventions necessarily. Uh, we weren't looking at interventions at this point, more at prevalence and what the outcomes were for therapy for people who had sleep issues. And we looked back at their outcomes, looking at what they came in with those GG scores and what they were estimated, their outcomes that we wanted them to have, where did they get to? And also where did they discharge to? Did they discharge home or did they discharge back to the hospital uh, or to another level of care? Um, so we found some really interesting things about sleep. We all know how much sleep impacts us. Uh, and we hear people say all the time, I didn't sleep well, especially in hospitals, short-term rehabs, even in ALFs and ILFs. And we kind of take it for granted that that's really an age-related thing that happens. We just start sleeping worse as we get older. But it's really not a physiological aspect of aging. Our sleep changes as we get older, but it doesn't necessarily get Horror. It just changes when and how we sleep a little bit. So we found from this that uh, we use the, the Medicare functional status codes and the promised sleep scales 
and looked at the functional outcomes, the self-reported sleep, and we collected as part of the routine process. Uh, 45 patients were part of the study over a three-month time period. And uh, we, we got 43 complete data sets, 36 from short-term rehab and 29 from long-term rehab. Sometimes people had to be excluded for various reasons, but we did, we tried to include all residents. A lot of sleep studies eliminate people who have cognitive deficits because it's hard to get accurate data, uh, but we tried to keep everybody that we could in, and we did include people who had some caregiver reports as well. Uh, seven of those people were from outpatient receiving outpatient services in an IL, and 14 were male and 29 were female. So far more female patients, which we also know have more sleep disturbances, actually. And a lot of that has to relate a little bit to incontinence and some of the, the higher levels of incontinence we see in older adults. Uh, we used RightTrack, uh, the functional pathways tool, to help us with our goal tracking. And for people who screened positive for sleep challenges, we had an average progress to goals of only 47%, whereas people who uh, screened negative for sleep problems, who didn't report any sleep problems, had a 70%, 77% progress to goals. So a wow. very significant difference in the amount of progress that was made during that three-month time period. We also found that people who had, there was more prevalence of sleep impairments than there were of sleep disturbances. So sleep disturbances are our perceptions of our sleep quality, our sleep depth, and our restorative sleep that we get. This includes perceived difficulties with or concerns with getting and staying asleep, kind of that anxiety around getting and staying asleep. And the perceptions of the adequacy and satisfaction with sleep. Whereas impairments were more about the perceptions of alertness, sleepiness, and tiredness during waking hours. And those things really impact us functionally during the day when we're trying to work towards uh, therapy goals. We get a lot of refusals. People don't want to come to therapy. They're too tired. They can't do it. And we found that there were much more people who had sleep impairments than sleep disturbances. And the one last thing that we found that was really significant is that for those who were positive for sleep challenges, uh, only 76% returned home, um, had the had the discharge we were hoping for, 100% of people who screened negative for sleep challenges returned home. So it's not, it wasn't a very significant difference because we didn't have a huge pool of people, but just to know that those who didn't have sleep challenges, all of them discharged home and only three quarters of those who did have sleep challenges discharged home was pretty significant for us from a clinical perspective that it's something that we really should focus on. Were there some other indicators, Kayla, around the difference between those that didn't have the disturbances or the impairments? Were there comorbidities that were involved? Was there something like any kind of key indicators that differentiated those that were having it and those that weren't? So we didn't find any differences between the amount of people who were in outpatient versus inpatient rehab, and we didn't find any difference between male and female. We didn't track for diagnosis because we really wanted to look more specifically at the um, 
at the sleep screen and the outcomes and not account for what could be going on with them. We do know that chronic illnesses, illnesses that result in illnesses and disabilities that result in pain, uh, those types of disabilities, uh, neurological disabilities uh, tend to have greater sleep problems, uh, but we didn't dive into the complexity of that at this point. This was just really our first step into really investigating what could be going on. And it's just the first part of a larger research that we hope to do in terms of intervention. What about medications? Were you looking, were, were any of those residents that did not have any sleep disturbance or impairment ta already taking medication? Was there a difference in that as well? Was that a consideration? So all the patients that we do, worked with were had some form of medications. There was a variety of medications involved. They were all being seen for therapy for a diagnosis. This was we didn't uh, we were getting them on the referral directly, you know, as soon as they came into therapy. So they were experiencing some kind of acute change in function that required therapy services. So there was something acute going on with them and they were all receiving medications. We didn't look at particular medications um, that would, we didn't have access to that type of data in the retrospective study. Yeah, I was just curious if, if any of those were on medications specifically for sleep. Like, were they getting a supplement of melatonin? Were they getting, I think every resident has medication nowadays, right? So, yes. but from a specific they were, nobody reported. Yeah, nobody reported anything significant. Uh, the only anecdotally, uh, the biggest contributor to sleep disturbances was incontinence. So we heard repeatedly uh, clients respond that they're waking up multiple times a night to use the restroom, and that was by far the biggest complaint in terms of why I'm not getting the sleep that I need to get. Was it directly incontinence or was it just because they had, they woke up and they had to go? Were they actually it incontinent was, or was it because they, they were getting up because they had to go? It was a little bit of both. So we had a lot of people respond that they were incontinent during the night, but more so it was a fear of being incontinent during the night. We had one resident who reported that she wasn't sleeping well and she was waking up frequently during the night because of a fear of incontinence. And we asked uh, what, what was going on. And she said, well, I set my alarm to make sure that I don't get up at night or that I don't have an accident during the night. And we asked how many times she was setting her alarm for six times a night to oh, wake wow. herself up to go to the bathroom. So she was never getting into a sleep pattern. And she was during the day sleeping through therapy, sleeping through meals, really struggling to make any progress. But she was waking up herself up six times a night to make sure she didn't have an incontinence episode. And we wow. saw a lot of that. And I'm sure that there would be a lot of other residents and patients that would be doing that similar kind of thing um, to avoid being incontinent because that's not something any of us want to be. So I, I can imagine that's probably more prevalent than just, just one person potentially. Plus, you look at the hospital setting and how often, whether you're looking at hospital or certainly the nursing facility or inpatient rehab, there's noises happening all the time. It's never quiet, yes. right? So there was there a, a, a question or 
conversation about that with the residents as well. Like the so, difference between how they were sleeping at home and how they're now sleeping in this different environment. Yes, uh, we did ask that question about whether this was a change from when they came in. And for the inpatient residents, for those who were in the short-term rehab, it they were experiencing a change. And a lot of it did have to do with noise and discomfort. There was a lot of reports of discomfort. Also, a lot of people were sharing a room. And that sharing a room with somebody else was a challenge. Though in the, the uh, long-term care facilities, Oftentimes, sharing a room with a spouse was a contributing factor, too, because of the noise and their own disruptions. Now you have two people disrupted sleeps, and it was creating kind of they were they were really impacting each other with it. But even for a lot of the people who were in long term care, these were problems that they experienced before they came. And we know chronic conditions really impact sleep and that uh, it, it's kind of a chicken or an egg situation. Did the chronic condition contribute to the sleep issue or did the sleep issues contribute to the chronic condition? Because they go hand in hand. And the worse your sleep is, the worse the chronic conditions become and the more chronic conditions you tend to have. But also the more chronic conditions you tend to have, the worse your sleep is. So it's really hard to know which way uh, what's impacting each other, but you can't solve one without addressing the other. And that's what we heard a lot of is I've always struggled with sleep. I've always had a hard time. I was never sleeping at home. I was always sleeping in the recliner. But really it was because they were having trouble with breathing, respiratory issues or back pain or neck pain. And so it would create this cycle of chronic issues and sleep disturbances. Were any of those residents on CPAPs or BiPAPs or? No, nobody was on any kind of machinery. Uh, we did not have really, sleep apnea is one of those things that we hear a ton about, but it was not something we saw prevalent in, the, in any of our patients. Yes, some had uh, oxygen that they were on routinely, um, but nobody that really had any diagnoses of sleep apnea. We didn't, and in our smaller population, we didn't see anybody. So was there a difference between the cognitively impaired and the non-cognitively impaired when you looked at, at sleep impairments and disturbance? Yes. So for the people who were self-report, and, and this kind of makes sense because we had to get some caregiver involvement and they don't necessarily know the feeling of the people who have the cognitive impairment and can't self-report. They reported more sleep disturbances because that's what they can see. They know they're waking up at night. They see them getting up. They hear them. Um, they they go in and have to, to work with them and they're seeing the daytime sleepiness, but they don't know they couldn't respond as well to the questions about feeling like they got enough sleep. And that's a limitation of a self-report measure. Um, we wanted to, we've looked at some of the actigraphy, which is like the Fitbits and the I and the Apple watches to track. Um, and those are great things to use. If you're interested in tracking your sleep, a lot of research studies use Fitbit. They're very accurate for it. But what, what research has shown repeatedly is that the actigraphy doesn't always match the self-reported sleep disturbances. So people feel like they are getting much poorer sleep than the actigraphy is showing. And there's that's really what's kind of started this study is that there's a missing link between 
what we're physiologically getting in terms of sleep and how it's making us feel and function during the day. So we wanted to look at that feel and function during the day. And for people who had cognitive disabilities who maybe weren't able to uh, give us their self-report as accurately, we weren't as able to judge that. We had great caregivers who provided really good information, um, but they definitely didn't show us that sleep impairment where it's about that function and that feeling as much as the sleep disturbances. So you said this study was not geared towards treating the sleep disorders from a therapy perspective or even from other therapeutic approaches. This was really just kind of gathering the information. So what are the next steps then for this? So if things came up during the screening process, like incontinence or pain or things that we would typically be working on in therapy, those were certainly addressed because they were issues that needed to be addressed. Sure. Um, but we didn't target sleep interventions directly uh, because we really wanted to see what was going on. So the next step in this is to help educate occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech language pathologists, and nursing staff and facilities in general about what can be done to address sleep with our clients. There's so much that can be done to address sleep. And for occupational therapists, it's built right into our practice framework. It is an ADL that we should and could be addressing. Um, there's a lot of resources out there to help guide OTs in it. But I think it really starts, what we saw is that the very, um, most important thing that we could be doing right away that doesn't take more than three seconds is just asking the patients, no matter what your discipline, asking about their sleep, because it was almost a relief. You could see it when you asked the patients about it. It was a relief for them to say, no, I'm sleeping terribly. I'm not, I'm not functioning. I'm sleeping all day. This isn't like me. I don't like it. And to let them share what was going on with them. They were very in tune with what was going on. But when nobody asks the questions, kind of like with incontinence, we never know. So I think the first thing is really just to do a very simple uh, question during the evaluations to ask about sleep, whether it's changed, and what kind of quality and quantity you're getting. There's a lot of really simple self-report measures that can make it easy to screen for sleep issues, and then also track from an outcomes perspective if you're making a difference. And then to help educate on interventions and ways to bill and documentations related so that sleep becomes a routine part of our intervention process with the clients and not something that we kind of think of as is a little out there. Maybe we do it occasionally with a couple of people, but really a, a routine thing we do, just like dressing, bathing, gait training, swallowing, cognition, all of those things. Well, and certainly if you go beyond the 45 residents that you talked about and you broaden that out into everyone and you look at if if that extrapolates out that 30% of difference, I think you said it was around 30% difference in outcomes, right? 40-something versus 70-something. 47 to 77, yeah. Yeah, that's... 30% difference in outcomes, and that's going to then contribute potentially to whether or not they get rehospitalized, um, whether they have further decline, those kind of things, and we want them to return home successfully. So, you know, that has to 
fall on PT, OT, and speech, certainly not just OT. So what are some of the things that therapists can do? You mentioned incontinence and pain mm-hmm. and those kind of things, but what are some of the other things that, that the therapy team can incorporate into their treatment sessions to address specifically speech, sleep hygiene? Yeah. Uh, Besides addressing the ancillary aspects, which, of course, as you mentioned, the pain and incontinence, but also medication management and helping clients understand what medications they're getting and how to manage their medications, how to talk to their physicians about uh, medication management timing, uh, because medications impact us all differently. And something that typically makes you sleepy, maybe it's an allergy medicine that makes most people tired and you're taking it at night, but for you, it makes you wired. Really examining the medications, looking at what could be contributing to it, taking pain medication during the day that really makes you sleepy. So then you take long naps. Um, So addressing those kinds of issues would really be helpful. I think one of the biggest things that we can do uh, is educate uh, and and help clients self-advocate. We aren't necessarily there as the therapy team at 11 o'clock at night when there is a lot of noise going on in the hall or somebody's coming in to give a medication that was missed or take a blood pressure. Uh, or And we don't have control over who is rooming with who, but we can help our clients self-advocate and educate them on ways to get better sleep and to address issues that create a sleep environment that really is conducive to sleep. Uh, the other things that we can do are help our clients uh, work on routines and habits that contribute to better sleep hygiene. So things like uh, making sure that if you take a nap, you're only taking a 20 to 30 minute nap during the day. No two hour naps. Uh, if you have really felt like you didn't get enough sleep the night before, taking a two hour nap the next day to make up for it doesn't contribute to better sleep the next night. Seven to nine hours is optimal. Uh, but if you only get five one night, take a short nap to get through and then go to sleep earlier. So trying to help our clients have more physical activity during the day, more social and mental activity during the day, um, getting them up and moving more often and helping to encourage them to do things at night that help prepare them for better sleep. So in the room, we can work on making sure that the lighting is as low as possible, cover up clocks, cover up IV poles that have lights on them, anything that emits any kind of light that we can help to reduce as much as possible. Uh, Using white noise machines, earplugs, to help reduce the amount of noise that they're experiencing. We can teach them progressive muscle relaxation and deep breathing techniques to help relax them. Uh, Getting them heavy physical activity before noon and then less physical, more social, uh, emotional, mental activity in the later evening. You know, a great Thing would be like a, a gentle stretching or a yoga class with others later in the day, a group treatment. Those kinds of less physically active but still movement-related types of activities are good to do later in the afternoon. Um, and helping them in their rooms to create an environment that feels comfortable for sleep in terms of their bed, getting it set up appropriately, 
Uh, even something as simple as bed mobility. So helping them to get in and out of bed easy is one thing, but when they're in bed, can they roll over comfortably? Can they move themselves around if the sheets feel uncomfortable, if their neck isn't in the right position? Those small things that we do at night at home to help us feel more comfortable, they may be more difficult when you're in a new bed and a new facility when you have mobility issues. And so we can help our clients be able to move themselves better. We can time moving better. We can create more activities for them and teach them some relaxation techniques to help them feel more comfortable. I think what you said about the bed mobility piece just kind of made a light bulb go on in my head a little bit because you think about when you look at GG, you know, we look at rolling left and right, sitting up on the side of the bed, laying back down on the bed, but we don't ever really talk about rolling around in the bed. And I I was just thinking about how I sleep and I'm a, I'm a kind of a side front sleeper. I don't sleep on my back. And a lot of times these residents are put to bed, you know, or they're helped to bed and they're laying on their back. Well, if you don't ever sleep on your back, I couldn't do that. I I wouldn't, I, my sleep hygiene would be horrible for that. So I think taking that into consideration from a therapist perspective and, and talking about that, when you go to talk about bed mobility, well, how do you normally sleep? Are you normally a side sleeper or a belly sleeper? Or are you a tosser and a turner normally? And, and incorporating that into your therapy routine for bed mobility and not staying within the confines of just the GG, you know, the, the three or four GG items around bed mobility. I think that's a great point. Absolutely. Uh, things like uh, we had, we ran into a client during the study who was having trouble sleeping. And really the root of the problem was that they had had a shoulder problem. It was causing them pain. And anytime they tried to move around in bed, it would create pain. And so then they couldn't get comfortable. It would wake them up because then they were they were uncomfortable. So they would get roused too much and then they couldn't fall back asleep. So just working on simple positioning of what can we do to put a pillow, put some barriers around you to make it comfortable, to keep your arm from moving in the wrong direction so that you don't experience that pain and wake you up, but you still have the mobility to roll as you would like to. Um, some of the information that we've seen, really the two biggest contributors contributors to poor sleep in short-term stay rehab has, has research-wise been noise and an uncomfortable pillow. Uh, those were the two biggest things. And I thought well, that makes sense because we already, we all experience such neck pain and back pain anymore. And when I don't have the pillow that I typically sleep with, it makes me really uncomfortable too. So even just getting them to bring in their pillow from home so that they can try and be a little bit more comfortable and create that environment uh, that really is conducive to, to sleep. Another thing that we can do, and from an occupational therapy perspective, change up our thinking a little bit that showers don't always have to happen in the morning. And sometimes for our adults that we're working with on bathing, switch it to later in the day because a nice warm shower later in the day and then cooling the room down really low, the shower revs up the body temperature and then we move them into a cool room and it helps drop their core temperature to the point where it starts to activate that, that melatonin production, that circadian rhythm moves you into that phase of sleep that really prepares you for it. So um, it, 
there are things that we can just change about when and how we're working with clients that can help promote sleep without even directly addressing it. What about diet and oral intake? Did you take a look at that? And was there any any correlations between that and, and sleep hygiene? We didn't specifically look at it, but there are a lot of important information about nutrition and sleep. Um, obviously, things like caffeine and stimulants can negatively affect sleep. And what we hear all the time from residents and facilities is that they go and have coffee at four or five o'clock in the evening, or there's a happy hour at four or five o'clock in the evening. And even one alcohol drink can negatively impact the quality of sleep and one cup of coffee can negatively impact the quality of sleep. Um, so eliminating those types of things in the evening can help if you're really struggling with sleep. Smoking is also something that you really want to try and limit as much as possible as you're approaching sleep, of course, anytime, but as they're approaching sleep, that can be a problem. Uh, not having that late meal. And so sometimes we're seeing residents who can't fall asleep at night. So they sleep later in the morning and they kind of miss that breakfast meal. And then they're in therapy around lunch or rushing to and from therapy for lunch. And so then they get a large meal at the end of the day. And that's really not what we want to see. The larger meal should come earlier, lighter meal towards the end of the day. And encouraging some, and we don't always have control over the diet aspects, but in the outpatient setting, you can maybe do some education. Things like turkey, salmon, bananas, leafy green vegetables help with melatonin production. Um, if they were interested in melatonin, certainly it's something to talk with the physician, uh, with their physician about, because we wouldn't want to do any medication management. Uh, we wouldn't want to interfere with any medications by promoting melatonin immediately. But there are natural ways that we can promote melatonin production through foods. Um, and then the other thing we see back to the incontinence is not getting enough to drink throughout the day and then kind of fluid overloading towards the night and then waking up often. So trying to be very careful about how we're spacing drinking, but dehydrating yourself contributes to worse sleep too. So you want to make sure that you're getting enough hydration throughout the day without backloading it into the evening. Well, and you've mentioned medications multiple different times, and I know we've done different uh, presentations on frailty and cognitive impairment and those kind of things around medication management. And one of the biggest things when you look at a, any of the frail scales, we typically use the Edmondson, but when you look at any of the frailty scales, even the self-report in looking at medications, that's the best way to mitigate pretty much everything. That you do, right? We've become, I think, a, a fairly pill happy society. And, you know, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but we rely very, very heavily on medications as opposed to treating things from more of an either an emotional or physical or whatever you want to say um, approach as opposed to just hitting it with a pill. So I know Absolutely. from a frailty perspective, the first thing you're supposed to do when you have somebody that's starting to edge into that frailty uh, piece is to look at their medication and take away the ones that they don't, that are either contraindicated or not interacting well, or maybe they're 
you know, like the statins or something like that, if you're 90, a statin may not be something you need to take anymore. And that's all up to the physician, obviously, but just at at least having that conversation and asking the questions. And I think to your point earlier, I think a lot of residents, especially in that age group, I look at my mom or my parents, they didn't question the doctor. They didn't ask. They just took whatever they were given. But I think it's time now with all of the medications that are out there and everybody's going to specialists and every specialist is given this and there's not necessarily good communication between all of those. Ask the questions and don't be afraid to to query the physician or the nurse practitioner and say, hey, do I really need to be on all these medications? And some of the biggest ones are we have people coming into these facilities and we know that depression and anxiety, the absolutely real conditions that we need to address and are prevalent in older adults. Especially after the pandemic. But sleep creates, it is a contributor of depression and anxiety. And you know, anytime you haven't slept for a couple of days really well, you're very moody, you have increased stress, you're more irritable, you're depressed, you're anxious. And what's the first thing that happens? We put people on a depression or an anxiety medication. Well, those things also come with side effects of insomnia, daytime sleepiness, brain fog, um, feeling um, restless leg syndrome, you know, we have a lot, there's a lot of other components to those medications that negatively impact sleep, where what we may want to try in some cases is addressing some of the sleep issues that may be creating irritability, moodiness, depression, and anxiety in these clients who are moving into facilities. Uh, I see it a lot in the, the long-term care, the ALs and the ILs. They've just moved in. It's a new environment. They're not sleeping well. They've got a lot to change and get used to. And so they seem like they're they're maybe experiencing some depression and anxiety. And the first thing we do is medicate rather than try and examine whether we can address the sleep issues that may be contributing to depression and anxiety. So those are some questions that you can maybe work with the, the client and the physician to and family to sort out. Is this something that we need to do with medication right now? Can we work on some sleep hygiene that might help support better mood, uh, less anxiety, less depression? And you know, things like increasing socialization, increasing physical activity, the same things that help promote better sleep also help reduce depression and anxiety. So we can really do a lot of things that that impact both of those issues and a lot of mental health components to sleep. Uh, we can address through treatments that address sleep that also address those mental health issues. Sure. So to summarize everything that we've talked about, I think we've gone through our whole list of things I know that we wanted to to cover on sleep hygiene. How would you summarize or what would be your top maybe four or five recommendations for patients and then also for staff to help improve that sweet sleep quality? For patients, my number one is self-advocate. Tell people to stop coming in. Tell people to put your medications on a different schedule so that you're not being woken up. Advocate for your sleep schedule. We, Some of us are night owls. Some of us are morning people. You don't have to change that because you come to a facility where the lights 
typically go out around eight and come on around six o'clock. If that's not your typical sleep schedule, you're not going to force your body into it and you're just going to end up suffering. So really being very clear about what supports your sleep and what you need to be sleeping better. Uh, patients can also create a sleep environment that's more conducive. Do the white noise machine, do the earplugs, bring in your own pillow, create the most comfortable space that you can create in the environment that you're in. Uh, talk to the physician about medications and how they may be, and nursing staff about how they may be impacting sleep. Get up and moving during the day. Uh, try to try to do 30 minutes of activity every single day. Uh, better to do more heavier activity, uh, things that push you a little bit early in the day. But don't let that be all that you do. Maybe do 15 minutes of heavier activity in the morning and 15 minutes of gentle stretching, uh, slow walking, something that gets you moving, but also relaxing in the evening. And um, don't nap during the day as much as possible. Limit your naps, those 15, 20 minute, 30 minute naps, set your alarms. Don't let yourself sleep for hours and hours on end because you won't sleep well at night. It really does influence it and it becomes a habit. Sleep is sleep in general is a habit. So we have to really be particular about how we create that that habit and what we allow to interfere with that habit uh, in order to keep it. And then for therapists, ask the question, make it a part of your routine evaluation uh, to ask about sleep. And think about how sleep, how you can incorporate sleep interventions into your typical uh, planning with the client. Write a sleep goal. Uh, if you ask the client and they say, yes, I have a sleep problem, there are a ton of sleep goals that you can create, even something as, as much as that you will, as easy as um, you will create a sleep environment that's conducive to sleep by the end of therapy that the person will get 30 minutes of physical activity per day to promote better sleep. You can tie sleep into a lot of things, but start making it part of your documentation. Um, advocate for your patients. If your client is always sleeping, if they are always laying in bed, help them figure out how to get up. That was another intervention that I, I forgot to mention, transfers help them get out of bed because the more time they spend in bed, the less bed becomes about sleep and the more it becomes about living and you want bed to be about sleep. So help them get out of bed, help them be, get comfortable in bed, bed mobility and transfers, um, create programs, group activities that help them get more activity throughout the day, not just in the morning and create those socialization activities in the evening and then educate uh, caregivers and staff that sleep issues is not a normal part of aging and we shouldn't just accept it as something that happens to us as we get older. It has a huge impact on us mentally and physically and there is things that we can do about it. It's not normal to have insomnia when you get older, even though we've kind of let it become the norm. Perfect. Any final thoughts or comments you want our listeners to know about? No, I, I think that 
we've covered everything. I'm really excited about sleep and I'm really excited that there's interest in promoting sleep. And so I hope to see more people working on this in therapy. And I'm always happy to talk with therapists that have questions or ideas that they want to discuss around creating sleep programming. Well, certainly having a 30% better outcome and, um, you know, being able to meet your goals a lot better for those residents that don't have sleep disturbances or sleep impairments is pretty mind blowing. So hopefully that is a light bulb on for everyone listening and they will move forward and they can reach out to us here at Functional Pathways and to you as well, Kayla. Really appreciate your time today. Again, Kayla Collins from Baylor University, OT extraordinaire and clinical associate professor. Thanks so much for joining us today and uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much.